Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Richard Linklater's new film, Last Flag Flying. The film tells the story of former Navy Corps medic Richard Doc Shepard, who enlists his war buddies from three decades ago to go on a road trip to bury his son, a young Marine killed in Iraq. As they travel up the East Coast to Shepard's home in New Hampshire, they try to come to terms with the shared memories of the war that continues to shape their lives. In addition to Last Flag Flying, Mr. Linklater's other works include the feature films Slacker, Dazed and Confused, the award-nominated trilogy Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight, the movie for television 515 an Hour, the documentaries Inning by Inning, A Portrait of a Coach, and Woodshock, and episodes of the television series Up to Speed. He was nominated for both an Academy Award and the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film, for his 2014 feature, Boyhood. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Linklater spoke with director Andrew Davis about filming Last Flag Flying. During their conversation, Mr. Linklater discusses how he uses the rehearsal process as a subtle rewriting process, how he works with actors of varying experience levels within the same scene, and his belief that filmmakers should make movies about their neighborhoods. Hello. We have to talk for 30 minutes and entertain you now after that. <laughs> no problem. I'm going to take this off. So um, I just want to say this is uh, wonderful to see such a relevant movie that has so many issues that reverberate today. And it's a rarity to see this kind of material get made in America. And uh, I know it's not with a traditional studio. How much did it making it for Amazon have to do with getting it made? Do you think you could have made this for any of the other majors? No, no. Especially I first tried back in 05, 06, um, and no one was having it, you know. Um, but yeah, all these years later, it never really went away. These characters, I loved them too much. And Daryl Ponixon, who wrote the book that it's uh, based on, I would talk to him fairly regularly and just say, "Hey, you know, someday that we're, that movie's it, it's not gone away. We're going to get that made someday." So it was like the happiest phone call of my life when I finally could call him and say, "Hey, Daryl, we're we're actually doing it. Amazon Studios likes the script." And so I just had a hunch things had changed and maybe. Um, it was time or something. There had been enough distance from, you know, a lot of war movies, and I don't know if this is a war movie, but it, it's in that, um, you know, it was too fresh, I think, in 05, 06, about Iraq. You know, it was just too, no one wanted to see it then, I think. So what was the process of de de developing it? You, there was this book in 05 that Paramount right. had an option, and you told me, 
And yeah. Then, and what, was there a was the script was there a script at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote the script uh, back then, uh, Daryl and I. And like I said, it wasn't happening then. But we adapted it farther and farther away from the book, because um, you know the book is um, technically Daryl wrote the last detail in 1970. That was his first novel. Right. But he's had a long career as a screenwriter and a um, novelist. And was he a vet? Yeah, Navy guy. Uh huh. Because it seems so authentic in yeah. so many levels. He did Cinderella Liberty. Do you know Last Detail and Cinderella Liberty were in theaters around the same time? Wow. Like the same week Mark back, back in the day. Isn't that crazy? Hal and Mark. Yeah. yeah. So the script, did it change much in terms of, because it's, it's sort of modern in terms of its... It's the technology issues with the phones and all yeah. that stuff. Was that was that in the original screenplay? Um, yeah, a lot of that. I think he yeah he'd written it in like oh four oh five. Yeah, so it was it was all about trying to capture that post nine eleven first year of the Iraq War thing, and that's what I kind of appreciated. Had we made it in oh five or oh six, we were sort of chasing the current moment where I was kind of glad to just you know say okay we're a period piece. Let's go back to that weekend where they caught. Saddam Hussein, that little time in December, and it just really grounded us in that period. But, I mean, not much has really changed outside of technology. The world largely looks the same, and, you know, I don't know. The same bad decisions are getting made? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't think anyone would have thought back then the war would still kind of be going on, you know. These wars in Afghanistan and Iraq would still be, you know, perpetual war now, I guess. We'll get back to that. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. its own. That's it's. But like I said, the movie's not really about that. It's, well, it's it is. About it these is. Three guys it is, coming back together. It's about know. the insanity of war, and that's what's so powerful about. Or how it, it affects people long term. Like, yeah. I didn't think I had a war movie to make, but uh, I thought this was my kind of war movie. You know, um, I wasn't interested in doing like battle scenes or anything right. like that. But the long-term effects this felt like the way to kind of explore what that is and i had such mixed feelings you know about about all this so making a movie was good uh, it was a i don't know don't you think like every movie you make you you learn so much you it takes you on a journey into your subject matter and i'm always trying to figure out what i actually think about a subject i don't really have it going in i'm i'm still processing it and that's part of my process so it was um it was a very enlightening journey. Met a lot of great people. So, in terms of just the process of getting a movie like this made, because I think that's a real feat unto itself. Where did the the cast come in in terms of the green yeah. light and all that stuff? Well, those kind of go hand in hand. I think it was sort of like we like the script. Um, you know, who who's going to be in it? You know, it's like I think that kind of determined the budget level because it was like I think Ted Hope at Amazon Studios said, "Well, this is the kind of movie that we'd make for like." you know, $3 million. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I think we're going to, it's a period film. And, and then what, but you know, who's in it. And once I had, you know, Cranston, Fishburne and Carell, that just put us up, you know, in the over 10, <laughs> which is what we needed somewhere in, over that. So we got, it, it, I felt great. They, they were very supportive. You know, every film, all I ask is just, just enough of, time and budget give me the schedule i need and the time we don't you know so it's, it's it's a road movie you know we had a lot of different locations and it was that but i think we had a 33 day schedule but we we wrapped on day 30 <laughs>
Just, Clint Eastwood, huh? Yeah, I told everybody I'm kind of in my Sydney Lumet phase, you know. I just yeah. this is it, you know. Here's what we're doing. Here's it. but it, it, I give it really to the cast. You know, we'd head into a, a location like some of these locations where we have multiple days, and we would just get ahead. They were we rehearsed a lot. That's really the key. And the guys were so um, consistent and worked so hard, and so it was. Yeah, we just kind of got ahead of ourselves. I wouldn't have thought. How but. much did the screenplay change after the rehearsals, in terms of the dialogue? Because it seems so natural, yeah. the improvisation, or on the yeah. set. Yeah, I think. I mean, we rehe- my rehearsal process is really like a subtle rewriting process. Right. You know, guys were free to uh, delve back into the novel and find things and. You know, Fishburne was like, what about this line? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that is a kind of a great line. Where would we put it? <laughs> you know, so it was, it's just a fun, collaborative, ongoing process that really never stops. I mean, in between takes, we're still finding new things or someone will throw out a great line and I'll say, oh, that's great. You know, directing is just choosing. I was like, oh, I really like that. Let's just do that from now on in every take. Yeah. Or like you just kind of don't say anything and maybe that little thing goes away. Right. So to prepare for this. Or if it doesn't, then you go, hey, don't do that. <laughs> so when Richard asked me to, to do what we're doing right now, I got, yeah. what do I, how do we, I'm not, you know, I don't know how to do this stuff. So, I, so luckily last night, he's an American master. I recommend everybody go to PBS and watch the American master show. We have a real Texas intellectual here. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so in watching it, it's an hour and a half documentary. Yeah, there was that documentary. I kept seeing all these things that reverberated as a, for another director. So, for example, when we did The Fugitive, the script was not nearly in any shape. And we were writing and improvising all the time. And one of the things that the distinction between different types of directors, they're the types who say, like Mr. Tarantino, don't you change that comma. You know, my words are God and you can't change things. And there are other people who say, give me all you got, yeah. which is the school I believe we're both from. Definitely. Which is if you've got actors who've worked with great... We're both writers, too, yeah. but I think... But great... There are the actors who bring to the table working with great directors in the theater and not yeah. working with other writers and have so much to bring to the to the table and you it's so clear that that's coming out of your work yeah that was always my instinct to really trust the actors i kind of i was always when i was just getting started i was in when i knew i wanted to make movies i got into acting classes not that i ever wanted to be an actor but i just wanted to kind of train as one so uh just to kind of i'd studied drama in college a little bit and written plays and things but i was pretty shy i didn't want to perform but it was the best thing i ever did get up and give a monologue in front of these people. I mean, it's frightening. But uh, it got me uh, to really appreciate a, what actors do and and to really know a, a good actor from a average so, actor. You know, I think they sense my appreciation for them. And so I really the, do trust them. What's the actor, difference between working with someone like your leads here yeah. who have this incredible background, all this talent, Versus in giving them the space to find their character and yeah. their and their action versus a, a first time kid who's got great talent, but you know needs a little more support. Technique. You know, I treat it the same whether I'm working with like a 12 year old. I just shot a movie this summer with a 13 year old who, had, she was an actor, but it was her first movie. But she was really smart. I knew the learning curve would be quick. But uh, same process. They're sitting in a room 
rehearsing. What do you think about that? And I, I really trust when they're like, I don't think my character would, you know, or why would I say that? Or And everybody's different, you know, like the coach of the team, you know, different players have different needs. You know, some need a lot of emotional support. Some want to be a little more left alone. What I demand, and I'm sure you do too, is just like a work ethic. We're going to work. We're not just going to show up and go shoot it. You know, we want to really feel our way through it and find the best version of every line, every scene, what we're doing here. You know, I just, yeah. that really helps me figure out what the movie is. You know, so for me, it's, it's very process oriented. So, I mean, here, Cranston, Carell, Fishburne, and, and, Yul Vasquez, Quentin Johnson, just the whole cast here. Were the two just, Marines, the two great Marines. Yeah. They were just uh, all in, man. They were just, it, they uh, worked so hard and had a good time. They really bonded, really supported one another. The wonderful scene thing. on the train where they're getting drunk and talking about the first time the Marine When they're in the baggage laid, car, right? yeah. And it's so, I wanted that to feel like an improv scene. Well, I wanted it to feel like it, a so drunken John Cassavetes film or, just, or the scene or skill, We can talk about coverage here. Yeah. So, so, so it's you've got a wide shot, but then you've mm -hmm. got these close-ups. How many times yeah. did you have to go through that to get the coverage you wanted? Two cameras, um, and we probably did about ten takes in that. Yeah, just it was a long, and they were so exhausted you wouldn't believe that scene takes it out of you, yeah. and it just people think we improv improvised it but it was like the same thing just over and then you'd hear cut and then just they would just go to nothing and then yeah. build back up that energy and go again go again go again it was pretty amazing the note that Carell kind of hit that note in his laughter probably only on the last couple takes or like somewhere in the end I knew we had kind of reached some point because I was so glad he did because to me that's kind of his crying scene he was never going to cry really to that degree in the movie, but I felt that was his emotional release as a character, Yeah, you know, surrounded by these old buddies and with his son just right there behind him, back to the right, you know, um, that he would kind of have this emotional, it comes off as, as laughing, but in a certain way, it's just this emotional release. So. You've worked with a lot of the same people quite a few times, especially uh, Sandra Dare. Yeah. Who <clears throat> I knew when she was, not even the film business, her brother's yeah. Bob Estrin, who was a, yeah. around when I was making my first movie. Mm -hmm. And she's cut almost all your films. And yeah, my, certainly my everything in the last 25 years. So how? what's the process in terms of working together? Because it's, you've you got such a nice thing going on here. How, how no. do you, is there an assemblage? Or I kind of love that long-term relationship, you know? And you get that with other crew people, but... You do this long enough, you kind of catch a wave with someone, whether it's a production designer or a DP, and you're kind of in sync. Your lives are interacting. Maybe you live in the same town, or maybe um, it just works out with their schedule and your schedule. But then you kind of fall, you know, they go do something, you lose kind of track of them. It's, it's a weird, um, you know, business that way. But uh, Sandra and I, she's always just made it work where she can work on everything. Um, that I'm doing, which I'm very grateful for. Like we're doing something right now. I'll see her in the editing room tomorrow afternoon. So tonally, you've done all kinds of different films, and you, you know you can't be pegged, except that there's a humanity, there's a kind of character quality to it. You're not about uh, ultra action and explosions, you know. So how do you how do you get these films made? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, just 
keep the budgets low. You know, that's been the, I don't know, I feel very grateful. I, it's certainly harder at certain times to get, get them made. I think we're in a good moment right now as of the last few years because um, there's definitely some lean years where you just can't get, or you could get films made, you just you didn't have the budget or the time to do it the way you, you know, it just felt like every day was such a strain, you know, but always grateful to get the movie made. But, um, yeah, each one was is kind of a miracle, <laughs> you know, to, for the planets. I always talk about just the planets have to align. You know, it's timing, uh, the right cast, um, and just budget. I don't know. Which, our, our own industry stock kind of wavers and um, depending on how the recent films have done, you know, all the usual stuff. So It's interesting because the studios, the numbers around 30 to $40 million to release a studio picture for advertising, yeah. just the advertising. It's like what's happening oh, with that. our elections. You know, you, you can't buy that television. There's so much money. Yeah. So, so that, well, how are we going to spend... Forty million dollars releasing your movie. If I can't play it in China, if I can't play it in yeah. Russia, so you're unique in terms of doing American subject matter at a low lower budget that yeah. allows you to tell these stories. But they kind of usually get released on a niche below. You know, I think the studios. You know, I've been doing this like I was making my first studio films were in the '90s. My first one really was Days and Confused. Did it for Universal for like six million dollars. But back then, remember they had a they'd have a slate of films. They'd have their big, big films. But then they also threw in some small films. Like right. oh, let's just give that guy six million, or you know, see what. You know, it didn't. Now it's so specific. Like it's these. I think they see the big picture, or they figured out what they're doing, or more specifically, what they're not doing. And that's these kind of films. So, <laughs> I remember uh, Bob Daly saying, "We just we're happy if we're hitting doubles, right? Yeah. If we, if we make get, hit a bunch of doubles, we'll get yeah, right. Grand so, slams only. So now yeah. I think you know after Jaws and a few other movies, it's like, yeah. oh, oh my gosh, we can go worldwide and make tons of. So yeah. I'm really, I guess as a business plan, it seems to. I guess it works until it doesn't. So I don't even complain. I don't complain about studios. I don't really currently want to work with i can't think of any studios necessarily i want to work with just because they just waste you know so much of your time you know it's just better to go to the more i love this niche i've been very blessed here lately i've worked with annapurna and amazon studios two two wonderful places i just you know if i could do every film in that world i'd be very happy good for you but studios, I remember being in development on a couple of things, you know, two years later, it's so frustrating and they just kind of keep putting you through the ringer. It's like, guy, you know, and something they probably don't even want to do really, but all these people work there and have jobs and just, I don't know. So you, you have, you have some, there are three wasted. producers listed on this movie oh. and Ginger, uh, Ginger Sledge, Sledge is the line, she's there right Day to day with the production issues. Yeah, she's also like production manager, but you know, producer in the big sense. Right. There from the very beginning. And you've got this incredible manager attorney named John Sloss. So, so how did, what, what is it? And, and then there's another name, Tom Thomas Lee Wright. What did Thomas and John do? Um, Tom Wright actually published the book, ah. and he is an old industry veteran. He's been around for a long. He was at Paramount a long time in the '80s. 90s and uh he's up in seattle he's friends with daryl ponixon and he self-published the book so it was pretty much an unpublished novel but i think they put 
Daryl wrote the book, and they, that's when it got floated to me um, way back when. And uh, he's a real film guy, really. He knows a lot of veterans. He's done some documentaries. Just, you know, one of these great guys you meet. And uh, John. And so he's an exec producer. And then John Sloss um, is has a company called, you know, Synetic Media. And, you know, he's primarily, you know, kind of on the financing end. So he takes care of foreign sales and all that kind of stuff. When it's uh, no, he doesn't on this one because it's yeah. Amazon Studios. Gotcha. But uh, you know, John's just kind of been with me since yeah, nineteen ninety or whatever. Um, so, you know, in in looking at the documentary, everything about things we can relate to on so many levels. Um, You've had a lot of struggles and great triumphs in your life, and you keep resounding oh, who back. Who hasn't? You know? Yeah, if you're lucky if you have any triumphs, but struggles yeah. for sure. But so, but you started off, you know, working with video cameras and tiny little cameras, and and and, and so or non, super eight cameras, super eight, yeah, and, and non-union, you know. And oh yeah. So 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 Worked then up to sixteen millimeter. Yeah. Got yeah. It. So so there's a there's a there's, do, do you is there anything that you miss about that process? Um. No, that was, uh, <laughs> no, of a time and a place, you know. I'm so, I am happy I started. I'm old enough to have started kind of in the film era, you know. It was all film, just editing, doing everything on film, doing everything yourself. So it really, it's a, a good foundation. But uh, I was always quick to adopt new things. I was doing um, digital editing in 92 when it was really, they weren't sure what system was going to win. Remember it was Lightworks, EMC, Squared. Hal Ashby was using Avid. videotape that was flying back and forth for a while. Video, like uh, literally three-quarter inch? or It was like, like VHS. Yeah, yeah. Video Lucas tape. had this system. Coppola, hundreds of Francis, obviously. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think post-production was easy to jump into the kind of digital age and all that. So, I... I can adopt that, but I shot film for a long time until I thought the digital cameras looked up, started to look. I guess it was the Alexa that made me think, okay, maybe I can shoot digitally now. A time and a place is a theme. That my first film was about my growing up in Chicago and mm -hmm. the Stony Island, the Stony South Island. Side, and then you know, I mean, I got inspired by Lucas and, yeah. and or Scorsese. They're doing films about their growing up. So I think you every did the filmmaker same thing needs too, to right? make a film from their own neighborhood, right? And they're usually that's what you better because they're from the heart. You yeah, know? and I think that's a good first film for everyone. When filmmakers come up to me and say, "Well, you know, I got this," and that, I say, "Just." Just do your own backyard first, you know, because right. that's your own voice or your characters you know, a story you want to tell. When people are looking around for stories, I say, look no farther than your own, you know, your own experience. And especially you don't have to pay people a lot if they're your friends, right? I know. They'll work cheap. And yeah. you know people who own the locations. And, yeah. You know, you're you're the neighborhood person. So, uh, yeah, everyone will cut you a break. So that there's a practical edge. And I think then you open up into different kind of films I think slowly um, your film interests and you know builds your confidence too like before I bit off certain kind of films I, before I would maybe adapt something or get into a story that I didn't originate but that I felt close to something like this you know I just had to slowly get there but I think that was building confidence to take on certain stories you became interested in writing very early on. And you were an athlete, and you, yeah, you got kid. injured, and you were able to go to the library after school early, <laughs> right? I heard that. So what role did your parents play in terms of your intellectual kind of 
focus or did you, was there in a very literary family? Yeah, I mean, there was no money. There was no money, but no summer camps, no nothing like that. But there was uh, education. You know, my mom taught at a college. She was um, really brilliant. I, I look back, and she was a great editor. I didn't really realize this for a long time, but I'd be writing that short story in fifth or sixth grade, and she'd read it and go, huh, well, that's good. Have you thought about, you know, she could, she mentored a lot of students that way. Wow. She was speech, speech and hearing, but there were a lot of drama. Speech and drama was the department at yeah. her college, but there were all these drama students in our living room singing and, you know, we'd go to plays and it was just fun. I just thought, oh, that's creative. I like those people, you know, so even as a kid, I was kind of around that, so... Pretty soon where, was was, it, where is this, in Texas? Yeah, it's in a little town, Huntsville, Texas. Huntsville, not Alabama, Huntsville, Texas. No, no. Okay. The people who settled in Huntsville, Texas had come from there. So really? that was a tradition, name it after where you're from. Gotcha. So. so your parents got divorced when you were how old? I was about uh, seven or so. Really? Yeah. And do you think that changed your, your being an independent character and being going off to do things on your own? Did it affect you in that way? I don't know. You know, it's hard to say what motivates you or why you are, <laughs> you know, who you are. But I, I think so. Little, little rough and tumble, uh, moved a lot. You know, that kind of. Um, well, my movie Boyhood. If any of you saw it, that's kind of my childhood. Yeah, right. I mean, that was my mom. You keep Patricia drawing, did a drawing good on your heart. Job of playing my mom. Ethan's a little more rock and roll than my actual dad. Ethan and I realized that both our dads were yeah. ended up in the insurance business. My, my dad wasn't like this yeah. uh, songwriter guy. He was really, but uh, smart, you know, a guy who'd kind of want to lay around, you know, just read all the time. Yeah. We both had the pleasure oh, to work with Patricia Arquette. Yeah. I, I did holes with Patricia. Yeah, and, she's and wonderful. We met. Um, and and you in the film society was where you sort of got your. Your, your hands involved in putting up posters for your movies. You learn how to promote things there. I know. That was a great, you know, again, I run into young filmmakers and it's all, you know, I was like, well, I didn't know. I just love movies. I didn't know if I'd be, I mean, I wanted to write and direct movies. But if I didn't, if that wouldn't have worked out, I would be distributing movies or showing movies. It would be something. I'd be writing about movies. I would be, because I, th- I just believe in the film culture so much. Um, I think that's a different thing than the film industry. You know, I just love people who um, are just making it happen. People who run theaters and people who help get movies uh, seen or, you know, that's that's really important. People writing about movies, teaching film. Um, so that was my world too. I started a film society in 1985. And it's only when I, it was selfish, I just wanted to see all these movies back then before everything was available. It was like, God, I can rent a print from New Yorker Films for $125. I just do the math. I can sucker 50 people into giving a couple bucks and we can see anything. So, you know, put up posters. And I had all this passion for film, but I was pretty shy for anything. I, I was just kind of working alone on my own stuff. But I could, uh, I could definitely hustle an audience for a Godard retrospective or, a, you know, showing... Uh, Kubrick's The Killing or, you know, just whatever film I wanted to see that was available. You know, it's interesting when you think about, I remember 
in the early when I first started as assistant cameraman, mm-hmm. the production manager had a pocket full of quarters. He'd be in a phone booth all the time. Yeah. Now they're changing the script on the way to work. Yeah. You know, <laughs> making sure. films. They didn't have they didn't have Xerox machines back then. Yeah. I know. So, I know. But people, you you always wonder some new innovation. Like, how did we make films before this? It's like, well, people just did. They, you know, people made it work. But I, don't, I can't really look back so much when you ask, would I want to do that again? No, I don't really miss that. I don't yeah. miss going to get the film stock at four in the morning, coming out on the bus. And it's great when you can pay people to do all that. You know? Well, now you can use really your iPhone great. and have it on the net for a billion people the next day. I guess right? so. Yeah. I guess so. Um, Kubrick wrote once that uh, he didn't trust people who didn't write things down. Um, and and uh, and and I noticed that that you have were doing details when you were really poor. You were writing everything you spent a cent on, trying to live on three bucks a day or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So that 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 attention to detail, that the idea of keeping track of everything, it's such a part of being a filmmaker. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, making a movie is kind of a system, right? But you have to live a certain way too. And I always had limited money. Or, I don't know. I think think it made me frugal. I was very frugal, and You're, could yeah, w- watch every penny I spent and save up money. It was always like, oh, I can make a feature film for this, and I was working toward that. And um, yeah, I would write down everything. I guess I'd write down every movie I saw, what date. And it's not like I have some kind of condition or anything. I was just things I was interested. I write down quotes and ideas and thoughts and just anything. But uh, yeah, I was keeping like, I guess the way you would a budget, like how much money I was spending. You make films about outsiders, in many ways, and and Large where do you think that comes from? Um, I don't know, feeling like one myself for sure, but uh, just kind of always just relating to them, you know, just the the. Uh, the unrepresented, you know, I've always wanted to make films about people that you don't, even like on this movie, let's say in the notion of war movies, you know, there's war movies that are made by the generals, you know, the big command above where the soldiers are kind of undifferentiated. But I wanted to make it kind of from the grunt in the trenches perspective, you know, like the the two tragedies referenced in this movie, their buddy a long time ago, Jimmy Hightower, and Larry's junior now those are kind of small time you know like they don't register a blip in the official record you know and yet they do reverberate so i I think like that's where the story is that's where the real history is or if you want to you know that means everything so i was always trying to represent um that or push the boundaries of what (laughs) what people think a film is anyway you know people talking or people something you wouldn't typically make a movie about so that is always sounds appealing to me. You know, like when I got this book, the word was, well, no one thinks it's a movie. And I read it and it's these guys just talking. And But it was about a lot. It had so much of humor and then there was anger and all of that. I was like, well, this is my kind of movie. Guys just <laughs> just talking. You know? Well, it, it made us laugh and cry. So, so well, I guess you've done it. Well, it was and, fun, definitely. And, you know, you... Talked about the business of dreams, and and trying to make a film where people feel there's a little more positive hope at the end of the of the day. 
You don't, I hope you, so, you yeah. Don't, you, don't, you don't do really dark stuff, which I really applaud. Okay, yeah, well, I'm kind of an optimist, I think, you know, in some, in some way. Yeah. Even though there's, you know, tragic comedy. You know, this was a challenge tonally because it's, it's obviously there's a tragic, sad undertone to the whole thing because that's what drives the story. But I don't think, I think anytime people are, have a lot of life to them and wit and humor that's kind of reinforcing humanity. Yeah. And so that always gives you hope, you know, that well, there's just alive people out there. This is a great movie, and I want so, to thank you for bringing it to us all. Oh, and thank you, Andy. It's an honor for you to be here with me. So thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for coming, guys. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We have many more great discussions for you coming up soon, including Rob Reiner's LBJ, Stephen Shabosky's Wonder, and Joe Wright's Darkest Hour. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>